everybody. Welcome to the back room. I'm Andy Ostroy. Very excited today. We have Congressman Jimmy Gomez from California. But first, I want to thank you for tuning in. We appreciate you listening. And we'd love to hear your comments. So email us at backroomandy at gmail.com and or post on our social media. And we'll read a few next time. And if you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe. And this way you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. So here's a little feedback we got this week regarding our anniversary episode from Raquel Perrazzo. Congratulations on putting together such a winning team and some great shows. It is a winning team. Maddie and Jen, the winningest of winning teams. Taffy Fantasia, it's such a great podcast. Thank you for bringing all those fantastic guests our way. Uh, Well, thank you for listening, Taffy. Daniel Gruss, could Aaron Sorkin be a future podcast guest? He absolutely can. And regarding our Jake Tapper episode, Shelley Frost writes, such an interesting guest. I've heard Tapper interview many people, but I've never heard him being interviewed. Great show, Andy. Thank you, Shelley. On our Rick Wilson interview, Thomas Lillis writes, he looks like he's up to something. I hope so. I think he is up to something. He's trying to take Trump down again with his Lincoln Project uh, crew. Um, Chris writes, well, that was depressing. I really thought Smith had a good chance of winning the documents case. Um, he does, and he's going to. All right, that gets us to our two big things. I have every right to have those boxes. This is purely a presidential records act. This is not a criminal thing. In fact, the New York Times of all had a story just the other day that the only way Nara could ever get this stuff, this back, would be please, 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 could we have it back? And they asked for them. Because they have no... We they were did ask for it. No. And they said, can you give the documents back? And we were talking. And then they said they went to DOJ to subpoena you to get... Which they've never done before. Right. Well, why not just hand them over them? Because I had boxes. I want to go through the boxes and get all my personal things out. I don't want to hand that over to Nara yet. And I was very busy, as you've sort of seen. Yeah, but according to the indictment, you then tell this aide to move to other locations after telling your lawyers to say you'd fully complied with the subpoena when you hadn't. But before I send boxes over, I have to take all of my things out. These boxes were interspersed with all sorts of things, uh, golf shirts, clothing, pants, shoes. There were many things. I would say much, much more. Not that I know of, but not that I know of. But everything was declassified. Only Donald Trump can think it's a justifiable excuse that nuclear secrets were in a box with his golf shorts. <laughs> right? Like that's like that 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 makes it okay. Like top secret nuclear secrets, classified documents are just like sitting in boxes in a fucking bathroom with his shit-stained skivvies probably. I mean, it's truly unbelievable. He has a lot of boxes to go through. I think you got to give him a break. I was busy. I was playing. Don't you people see I'm playing golf? As you know, he's so busy. I'm busy. I can't. It's, what's more important, me playing golf or finding nuclear secrets sitting in a box in the bathroom? I like the way he said he gave them back some of them. <laughs> I mean, it, yeah. I, I gave back some of them. I stole that. I robbed that bank, but I gave back half the money. And then, uh, sir, please, please, pretty please, please say pretty please. Pretty, pretty, please give back the boxes. Uh, beg me, beg me some more. Pretty, please, sir. Please, please, please give it. Who the fuck has to beg him for nuclear secrets? Give the fucking boxes back. It beyond you. I don't know what to say. Every time this guy opens his mouth, it's like literal, like adding prison time to his sentence. It's 37 counts of documents. And we just learned that an FBI agent had four counts a few years ago and went to jail for four years. Well, that clip we just played for you was from uh, an amazing, insightful, incriminating as fuck interview Trump gave with Brett Baer on Fox News on Monday night. Because Donald Trump literally went on national TV and basically said, I not only took these documents, but I obstructed the government's investigation, in his own words. It's not unlike what he said on CNN's town hall. So he does have a history of saying things on national TV, which he shouldn't say. I, I can't really get over his hubris of not having a lawyer present. It's just, it's mind boggling. Well, his lawyers probably, A, told him not to do the interview. B, if you're going to do it, to your point, I want to come with you and sit next to you and be able to put my hand in front of you and say, no, don't answer that question, sir. Uh, and he probably was like, no, I'm amazing. I can do it. Don't worry. I'm Trump. And then he was speaking at Bedminster. He's telling everybody, all the lawyers, the best lawyers in the country, 
They're calling me. They want to work for me. And I'm like, no, I don't need it. In the meantime, he can't even get Jacobian Myers to work for him. <laughs> and yet, latest polling shows that his Republican base is completely behind him. And this has made absolutely no difference in their well, support. Well, that's not true. That's not true. There's, I think it's Quinnipiac showed a 10-point drop from, from a April to May post-indictment. That just came out like two days ago. I think he's a real wounded animal. He's getting kicked by a lot of people. The long arm of the law from Georgia to New York to the federal government is up his ass. It's not going away. He's never had to face this kind of stuff. I don't know if we can sit here the way we used to do and say, well, don't ever count out Trump. I, I, I think we may be able to count out Trump. Well, considering he's a wounded animal, he's able to truth out something in the morning and by the afternoon they're censuring Adam Schiff. That's fine. But, you know, Adam Schiff is going to be the winner in a year, two, three, four. I think 2024, <laughs> they're going to lose the House in addition to the White House, in my opinion. It's entirely possible, but his strategy isn't going for the popular vote. Uh, they've given up on that. They're going for something in between the Electoral College and what they can get a state legislature mm -hmm. to overturn. Yeah, it's look, it's it's never wise to count out Trump. It's never wise to say there is no way Trump can blah, blah, blah. But this is, to me, the closest point to an inflection point we've ever gotten with him. Well, now, the math still makes a lot of sense for him winning the nomination. However, there's a lot of time between now and when those primaries start, and there's a lot of people talking shit about him, and it could be a different campaign in 2016. Well, Plus, as they're talking shit, George is going to indict him. Jack Smith's probably going to indict him on J6. That's going to be indictment number four. He's going to be taking fire in ways he did not in 16. I don't know if he's smart enough, lawyered up enough, capable enough to survive any of that. To your point, it uh, you know, I'm the never rule out Trump person in the room. And um, it, I thought it was interesting that we've heard through his hat into the ring mm -hmm. in a very aggressively yep. uh, anti-Trump way that mm -hmm. um, I do think that we'll see more of in the near future. Yeah, I, I agree. And so... We just don't know. It's With him, you just never know. It, the last thing on Trump, I think, is important to note is that at least so far, Judge Aileen Cannon is playing things by the book with the scheduling. Like, she's not showing she's in the tank for Trump. Now, we have a date of August 14th for the trial in the Mar-a-Lago documents case. That's probably not going to happen because there'll be motions to delay because we all know innocent people want to prevent the trial as long as possible. Uh, the other news this week, the Supreme Court. What the fudge is going on there? Samuel Alito. He took a fishing trip from billionaire Republican donor Paul Singer. The airfare, round-trip airfare alone, valued at about $200,000. There are laws that you have to disclose this shit, you know? You can't just take expensive gifts and travel from people who especially have cases like Paul Singer d did and does before the Supreme Court. I have a question. How come there are never liberal justices doing this shit? How come it's only Clarence Thomas, Neil Gorsuch, Samuel Alito? It's always the Republicans who take the grift. Um, it, it, look, it, we need some kind of uh, oversight of the Supreme Court. I don't know how it's going to happen, when it's going to happen. It's if it's going to happen, happen, John Roberts, Chief Justice, is completely lame. He doesn't seem to give a shit that his legacy is being flushed down the toilet. Yes, but if someone leaks a decision, he'll get the marshals in to investigate thoroughly. That's important. Very. And, and also that women can't get abortions. That's really important. We should make a note that yeah. when this show is broadcast, uh, that will be the one-year anniversary of the Dodd decision. Wow. With 61 clinics closed across the United yeah. States. No, look, well, and they lost, they they paid for that politically and they're going to continue paying for that politically. This is why they have not literally won a decent election in how many fucking years? Because this is what they do. They can't help themselves. Give them power and it then becomes greed, vengeance, grievance. It's all it is. And you're 100% right, but 
not to be Debbie Downer, but it has affected people's lives. You have all these clinics that are closed. You don't have access. Yeah, I mean, not, it really does affect no, people's it, it, lives. No, it totally affects people. They don't give a shit about people. No. They, they claim they do, but they don't give a shit about anything except being able to pack a gun, stop a woman from getting an abortion, keeping trans, the 100 trans athletes in America from playing, because that's a big problem. You know, in a country of 340 million people, there's a hundred trans kids. And I'm willing to bet a good chunk of them are probably five foot two and scrawny, okay? According to Nikki Haley, that's the cause of all the teenage suicides. Yes. All right, let's get to our winners and losers. My loser, George Santos. George Santos explained his vote to censure Adam Schiff. We must preserve the integrity of the U.S. House. What bullshit. My winner, New York State passed a bill that provides legal protection for New York doctors to prescribe and send abortion pills to patients in states that have outlawed abortion. My winner is Congressman Adam Schiff for the badge of honor he received when he was censured by the batshit crazy Republican-controlled Congress. This will probably get him Feinstein's Senate seat. My loser is RFK Jr. for his insane performance on Joe Rogan, which prompted Joan Walsh to write a mea culpa in The Nation yesterday, and his latest outrageous statement that, quote, Russia acted in good faith when they invaded Ukraine. My winner, Brett Baer. My loser, Donald Trump. All right, let's get to our weekly rant. Donald Trump was recently indicted by the Department of Justice, slapped with 37 felony counts relating to his alleged alleged theft of top-secret classified documents and obstruction of the government's investigation. Unfortunately for Trump, after his catastrophically self-incriminating Fox News interview Monday night with the new hero to the left, Brett Baer, we no longer need to use the disclaimer alleged anymore. Because Donald Trump went on national television and admitted taking the documents and obstructing justice. Because Donald Trump is a fucking moron who can't keep his big orange mouth shut. Because Donald Trump is a petulant, defiant toddler. And because Donald Trump is a malignant narcissist who not only thinks the world revolves around him, but that everything in that world is his. Mine! Mine! He's shrieked countless times like a toddler who won't share his toys. Well, now he's done shot himself bigly in the bone spurs. As Chris Christie said after watching that interview, his lawyers this morning are jumping out of whatever window they're near. All of this, including the 37 felony count indictment, could have been avoided if Trump just simply complied with the government's year-long request, which was actually more like begging, he says they should have begged, they did, to return the documents. But not only did he not do that, he continues to defy his lawyers by talking about the case and doing the Department of Justice's work for them. Because Donald Trump is his own worst enemy. Because Donald Trump can't help himself. There's no fake news, no witch hunt, no deep state conspiracy. Remember the phrase from years ago, let Trump be Trump? Well, we have. And this is the eventual result, though it took almost 10 years to metastasize. Donald Trump will go down in history as the single biggest cause of Donald Trump's business, political, and legal downfalls. So the big question is, are we finally at the inflection point everyone's been waiting for? I truly believe we are with many of his staunch defenders in the Republican Party smelling blood and running for the hills. Because the once useful idiot is no longer useful. There's no more return, invest return on investment with Trump. As an investment, he's now buy high and sell low. The mother of all write-offs. And so now the case, the United States versus Donald J. Trump, has as the best witness against him, Donald Trump himself, in his own words. All right. Congressman Jimmy Gomez represents California's 34th Congressional District. He sits on the Committee on Oversight and Accountability and serves as an assistant whip of the Democratic Caucus and deputy whip of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. He is also the founder and chair of the Congressional Dads Caucus and is a member of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, the Asian Pacific American Caucus, and Future Forum. Prior to his election to Congress in June of 2017, he served four and a half years in the California State Assembly, where he served as chair of the Assembly Appropriations Committee. Congressman, welcome into the back room. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So obviously there's a lot going on, and I want to uh, talk all things Congressman Jimmy Gomez and the House. But before I do that, I want to just peel back the onion layer a little bit. Um, 
talk about childhood, uh, politics. Was that something always on your radar as a kid? What kind of kid were you? Did you care, <laughs> did you care about any of this stuff then? <laughs> uh, great question. Um, you know, it was interesting. I, w- I was the youngest of six of immigrant parents. I grew oh. up in, uh, 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 in Riverside, California, but my brother and I um, were born here. Four of my siblings were born in, in Mexico. And uh, so I, I grew up in a, in a time and place where you know, you're singing all sorts of patriotic songs when you're in elementary school. You know, uh, and, uh, you know we're, we were taught over there by George M. Cohan, right? Wow. It's like, we're the... We're the yeah. The mighty Americans are to come and save everybody. Times and, have, uh, times have changed. It, time ha- times have changed. So it was really kind of like this time of in the eighties, if people remember, of uh, you know uh, of American exceptionalism. That you know it was Reagan era. Everybody talking about just um, just the, the United States. So it was a time that was very very different, and. Um, I ended up believing in a lot of that hook, line, and sinker. I was like, I was, I was sold, and and it was just because also I would go back to Mexico where my parents were from, and I would see how they lived once upon a time. Right? They were they lived they worked a pot of land. Uh, they were plot farmers. Whatever they sold, and after they paid their what they owed to the landlord, they kept. And it was a one room adobe house with a thatched roof. You went to the restroom out in the in the bush, basically. So it was a it was a different time. So I kind of rec- always recognized where I lived, how we lived, even though we were working poor. Mm-hmm. Um, it was still a different place. I mean, my parents would tell me stories about how they didn't have enough food to eat. They told me stories about how when three of them got bit by a scorpion, they only had enough money for one vaccination shot, one one shot. So I was like, "Who gets it?" Jeez, so that's a horrible story. <laughs> I know. My dad was like, "Well, you know." Um, because it was this, his sister, the true story. He goes, my sister got bit, my wife got bit, and my mom got bit. We only had one. He goes, I had two sisters, <laughs> I had a wife. He goes, and the mom was probably the the one. So they gave it to the to his mother, of course. So it was, uh, but that's how they grew up. So I was, um, we didn't talk politics, but I was always kind of, I became aware of the contradictions of, of what it meant to be living in, you know, one of the greatest countries on earth, but then at the same time, when my parents had to work four jobs a week, we didn't have health insurance, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the struggles. And so I sounded kind of like was always questioning why are things the way they are? But I was not like, I was the kid that, um, I, most people don't know this. I actually got held back in third grade. So I wasn't the, the, oh, wow. the kid. Yeah. People think I was, um, I got held back and people thought I was just, um, just immature and small. Actually, it was kind of small when I, uh, if I would have, not been held back. I would have graduated at uh, barely 17. So it was like, I was really, I kind of started early. So, but, um, so I was never the the kid, but I could turn uh, the kid that was going to uh, interested in politics. And then when I got to high school, I just got more and more interested. And a, a friend of mine, somebody I knew, he was a Reagan Republican and he tried to get me to go into, um, go to a rally in, um, I think Simi Valley or somewhere. This was in, ni- in the early 1990s. And he goes, oh, we're, they're paying kids. You know, if you come, we'll pay, they'll pay you 50 bucks. And well, 50 bucks, that was a lot of money back then. And I was like, sure. I, I was thinking about it. And then I was talking to people what difference was between Republicans and Democrats were. And I was like, yeah, I don't sound like a Republican. I'm more of a, mm-hmm. a Democrat. And, um, but I was, I was always his- list- interested in history. I was always interested in kind of like, why are things the way they are? Grew up without health insurance. So when I, why, um, but I never talked politics with my family. Uh, I never talked politics with anybody. I, I, um, I was more about kind of like thinking about it on my own, like, and it was that, that conflict. Okay. Why, if this is such a great country, which I compared to where my parents came from, had more opportunities, but they still were like working four or five jobs a week. Right. We had no health insurance. So it was something that was hanging on me and. And then when I graduated, I wasn't planning on going to college. I ended up um, going to um, working at Subway and Target. Mm-hmm. I worked from uh, five in the afternoon to nine the next morning. I worked mm-hmm. from five to ten thirty uh, at night. Um, and by the Subway. way, two two great places to get employee discounts. By the way, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's if you have enough money to use those discounts. True. Um, 
but over at um, at least, and then, but the good thing about Subway, they would always give you a six cent sandwich and a much, uh, much so, uh, uh, soda you wanted to drink. So that was mm-hmm. one benefit. And I work at um, Target from 12 to nine in the morning. And, and I was just kind of realizing if I don't do something, this could be the rest of my life. So what am I going to do? So a friend of mine took me to community college. I originally signed up for one class, got a B and he was like, you should go full time. So I switched to full time, dropped the Target job because that was hell. Stocking shelves, although it, it was, it was like a workout for eight hours. Um, it was not fun. And they don't like my back started hurting. And of course the employer didn't care at all. Um, so we're, um, so it, it was a interesting situation and then um but i went to a school for biochem at first true story biochem and um because i wanted to be a doctor to take care of people who didn't have health insurance that's what i wanted to do and i always thought about politics but um i was like now nah, it's not going to be something i can actually do i come from a family with zero money my parents had third grade educations we had no relationships how much and i lived as a democrat lived in a very conservative area so how i'm going to enter into politics and what, I joined the Honor Society, and it, and this is kind of where everything changed. I went to a workshop on political activism um, uh, with the Honor Society, and it just clicked. Mm. This guy talked about how one person can make a difference, gave us strategies, and then he talked about how um, people working together can make a bigger difference. And he did the labor unity clap, you know, where everybody kind of claps in unison. Mm. It just clicked. So I decided to run for the presidency of the Honor Society. A week later, I was not on the board. I had barely made it into the honor society. I was, and uh, to make a long story short, I beat the guy who was supposed to be the next president um, by one vote, and I ended up becoming the president of the honor society. Wow, there's a lesson and, there, right? About one vote <laughs> can make the difference. Yeah, uh, it was one or two votes. It was really close. And then, and then I ended up um, six months later, in the new year, he was in the new school year. I couldn't get my organic chemistry class and I was talking to him and he's like, what are you doing as a, as a biochemist? I said, well, I want to be a doctor. I want to help people get coverage and, you know, be able to see a doctor. And he said, he said to me, he said, you know, you can do that through politics. You don't need to be a, a doctor. And he said, you should change your major. And he's like, and I, and I kind of rode home on my bike. I didn't have a car at the time. And, uh, so yeah, I'm going to change my major. I'm going to go into politics. So at that moment, I decided to change my major to political science. All of a sudden, I had enough units to transfer to UCLA within a year. Transferred, major in political science, minor in urban planning, public policy, and just went all in and said, okay, this is going to be my, my life's work. Mm. And after that, everything kind of fell into place. I ended up graduating um, summa cum laude from UCLA. I ended up working for different elected officials, ended up going to Harvard Kennedy School of Government for my master's, worked for Hilda Solis, and then um, then um, changed my uh, trajectory and started working for labor movements. I decided never to work for an elected official after I worked on the Hill, not because Hilda was a bad boss. It's just that I had my own views of what the world should be like, and I wanted to make those happen when you work for an elected official you're implementing their views not your own views and so from that moment i decided to work for labor unions help get other democrats elected that i believed in and then um, that was in 2006 and then by 2010 i was already running for state assembly and uh, and then won in 2012 and was the appropriations chair in the state assembly worked on paid family leave climate change Equality issues, protecting individual uh, individual rights, protecting the right to choose, all sorts of stuff, and then the the seat came open with um, with uh, Javier Becerra getting appointed. So for for the guy that didn't really think he would ever go into politics or even go to college, the, my life after I made one decision kind of had a dumb. Well, that's a quite that's quite a story, and your transformation is amazing, and it really is the embodiment of the American dream, and it's a story of immigration. That unfortunately, in the climate we live in today, is not the story that's been put out much in the era of Trump. But that is quite an American story. And that's, you know, I listen to you talk about your story and I immediately think of the Statue of Liberty and the words that are inscribed at the base of that monument. And 
because that's what America's supposed to be. You know, give us your tired, your poor, your hungry, your yearning to be free, et cetera, et cetera. Why do you think this country has come so far away from that, where instead of looking at immigrants as those who are going to help grow America and America's prosperity and contribute to the economy and make us even greater, immigration is now looked at as this evil thing and immigrants are evil and the country has been striving for decades to enact immigration reform. We can't do that. How do we get to that place where Americans can feel comfortable welcoming immigrants again? Yeah, it's, um, I call immigration, the issue of immigration, the third rail of American politics. It's one of the most difficult. Um, and it's because the parties and their views are so far apart. And, um, and it is, um, in order to get something done big on immigration reform, you got to be willing to stake your careers on it because whatever compromises reach, it's not going to be make anybody, um, happy, but it's, um, and I think the reason why is I think it's the reason why I, um, Cal, it's the same reasons California went through this. Look at California and we're kind of the, we're at the forefront. Um, the population was changing. So I grew up in the eighties and in, in Riverside kind of my, my, um, childhood was unique as it, as it, as we moved there it was mostly a white neighborhood with, um, a one black family. This was just on one block, one black family, um, a Puerto a Rican family and a Hawaiian family, which, and then us, we moved in. So it was already kind of changing, but there was a point in time in my, in, um, in my, um, neighborhood, it became extremely diverse where you had, um, you had, um, multiple Latino families. Um, you had a Jehovah witness family, which was interesting. You had Irish, you had like, I mean, you think of like a, 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 a melting pot of what, like, Mm-hmm. of diversity and change. It was my neighborhood. It was, it was so different that when I tell the story to people, some people find it hard to believe. And I had to ask my brother, who the, my, I'm the youngest of six, was this the way it was really like? And he's like, yeah, that's how it was. And you see photos when I was in elementary school and it was mostly, it was me and a bunch of um, white kids. It was, and, and there's a photo and, and it was just pretty um, stark. But as I got to high school, my high school beat was a very diverse high school. It was um, ha- uh, part black. Think about this: quarter black, quarter Asian, quarter white, quarter Latino. Wow. Yeah. And the year before I got there, there was race fights, and people were getting into fights. The Asians were fighting the whites. The whites were fighting the blacks, and it was just this this mess. But then it kind of settled out, and this and then there was a backlash against immigrants. This was. In the '90s, in the late nine, in the mid '90s, with Pete Wilson, even Diane Feinstein mm-hmm. saying stuff about immigrants, and what it was, I believe, was this just this fear of of, of changing or the changing look of America, not the feel, not not the values, but the look, right? Um, and until it reached this kind of equilibrium point and tipping point where it was more minorities, then it kind of finally balanced out. That, that rhetoric, the anti-immigrant rhetoric had to go by the wayside because in order to win right. in California, you couldn't be anti-immigrant. And then Pete Wilson pretty much drove that into the Republicans. Remember, the Repub- California was a Republican state for a long time. Mm-hmm. And his anti-immigrant um, rhetoric and policies and positions drove the Latino community into the, into the arms of the Democrats for years. I believe what's going on in the country is something similar. The country is changing in such a rapid way. Um, you know, when you have growing populations of Latinos, not just in the traditional Southwest states, but you have it in Nebraska, North Carolina, South Carolina, in the deep South, right? People are wondering, what, what's my place, right? Because everything has been built on this idea of what it means to be an American. It's often white, Anglo, um, and if you look at your elected leaders and they're changing and people, your teachers and your, fi- your firefighters, police officers, that people are under what's my place? Because people have value structures, right? Mm-hmm. And those value structures help them make sense of 
their environment, the world that they live in. And it, so when you, when Obama got elected people, like people, some people were like, yes, great. This is amazing. Other people freaked out. That's what I think happened, right? Cause you're, you're questioning, you're challenging the value structure of what people, how the world was ordered. I think you're hundred percent right. Yeah. And until we, um, until it, like the population shifts enough where all of a sudden everybody's competing for votes, competing for making sure that they can stay in power, that, that rhetoric, until then, the rhetoric's not going to shift. Um, or they can try to co-op some of the different populations, right? Oh, these new immigrants are, are not like you because they didn't, they're not coming in the right way. Um, you're the good immigrant, right? So it's this, it's this kind of like this rhetoric. So um, it's a tough, tough issue, but I, I do believe that's, the case. I remember when I was at the Kenny School, I was there in 01 to 03, graduated in 03, in May of 2002. And I remember this because um, a little known fa fact that was pointed out, I think, in the LA Times, half of the children born in California in May of 2002, for the first time ever, were, were of Latino descent. Half in California. Wow. So if you take in African Americans and Asians and different populations, you know, do the math. They're like within 18 years, I was like, by the, by what year? 2020, half of the children and probably sooner becoming voters, becoming born full citizens are taking power. And, um, and it's exactly what has started to happen. So, um, so you're saying like it's like white was, replacement, fear of the other and fear of losing their place in this society and this culture and their influence, their power. But it's all, it's just, but that's always been the case across every generation. In New York, the, the Italians were afraid of the, or of the Irish coming in. The Irish were right. afraid of some, you know, it's always, it was this fear of being displaced. And, um, and how do we handle those changes is really what our challenge is. Um, that is the challenge of, of, America in the 21st century. It's, yeah. it's the, the, the changing demographics and, um, and policies that have to acknowledge that. How do we do it in a way that brings people together that doesn't say that this group like penalizes one group versus another? How do we do it kind of to live up to our best ideals, to the, you know, the Statue of Liberty ideals versus mm -hmm. the Donald Trump ideals that you want to like everybody, you know, that they're just a bunch of murderers and rapists. Right. Um, and um, that is what the what is um, challenging. But I uh, and and I think that in, uh, immigrants are believe in in America more than than Americans. So um, so we I think we we have a challenge, but I think we'll we'll get through it as long as um, we don't um, do anything to create permanent harm. Yeah. Well, you mentioned Trump, and it seems like. Look, Trump didn't invent racism and xenophobia, but he let the genie out of the bottle in a way that no one else has. And so today you have this horrible scapegoating and demonization of entire segments of our population in ways that, you know, Americans start to turn on each other and immigrants start to turn on each other. And our leadership is fomenting this fear and hatred and inciting violence. I mean, my God, the last eight years have been insane in this country, you know, and it's like yeah. immigration is just part of that. It makes you wonder, can you go back? And maybe it's just all leadership, like, like you were suggesting. Yeah. It, it, you know, electeds do respond to, to voters and where they're going, but there were, um, there were Republicans that didn't take the bait. Right. I mean, remember John McCain in that moment. Right. Uh, when the woman uh, said, oh, uh, you know, he's not an Arab, he's an Arab, he's not an American, and he's a no, 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 no. You know, we need more of those kind of Republicans to push back on, on that on that language. But when you're like, they see that in order to get elected in a, in a primary, to get elected in a, in a, in a, in a, in a presidential uh, primary, that they have to go hard right, that's, that's the problem. But in the end, they used to go hard right, if you remember. Mm -hmm. And the Democrats would be on the left. And then to win the general, you move back to the middle. That's just kind of mm -hmm. the, the nature of our electoral politics. But they stopped moving to the middle, right? It was more net, like 
And the Republicans in Congress have doubled down on the grievance politics, right? right. Every conspiracy theory now is a, is a committee. You know, the, the, the weaponization of the federal government select committee that McCarthy set up is just a different word for deep state. Right. Right. That, think about it. It's well, the, the irony is that they are doing the weaponization. Um, right. And I want to ask you about what they did yesterday in that regard with Adam Schiff. But before we talk about the House craziness, I want to ask you about right. something that's actually really good in the House, which is the Dad's Caucus, which you started yeah. and which you are the chairman of. Yeah, thank you. Um, now, the Dad's Caucus, um, it was it was came out of my um, the viral moment with my son on the floor of the House floor. Uh, during the speaker's vote. Um, my whole thing, before he was born, I was like, oh, I want to take my, my son to the House floor when I get um, when I get sworn in. And every parent who is a new parent does that. They bring their kids, they take photos. Uh, my first year, I brought my friend's kids. And um, so, but this one was, uh, I wanted to bring my son and it just became long and it, it was, uh, he was getting fussy and we're in the back folk room. So I, what calms him down is carrying them in the baby care. And I just said, okay, just give them to me. I'm going to carry in the baby care. I was talking to um, AOC and and we missed the, the roll call vote for speaker. And I said, oh, let's go. And we went outside. We went onto the floor. And that's when I was thinking about all these people who were making announcements. Oh, I'm supporting Hakeem Jeffries for this. I'm Hakeem Jeffries for that. And I was like, well, I'm going to, you know, I'm, I support Hakeem Jeffries for all the, for all the, the, the kids and the families we need to, because um, we support paid family leave and the enhanced uh, child tax credit um, and for my son. And that's when I announced it. And it was a viral moment. And then I got all these calls and I was talking to people about parenting and different um, government and what it meant. And, you know, I recognize there is a double standard. Men will, um, men will often be praised and women would be criticized for taking their child to the floor. And mm. I worked on, um, and I kind of tried to push back on that. And and my wife was very clear when we're, we're like, I'm 48, I was, she was, I was 47 when my son was born. My wife was 40, 41. And um, we just, it was a very conscious decision. Okay, we're going to have a baby, but I better be around. I better do my, you know, fair share of work. That means that no matter what happens, no matter what I'm doing, right. If I'm the one, I got to take him with me. So, mm -hmm. and, and that's why I was like, and I told her from the very beginning, I was like, oh, if I have an event to go, I'll just throw, I'll just throw him on my back and let's go. Right. And that was kind of the attitude. And that's how it happened. And a, um, a friend of mine who I worked on uh, paid leave here in the, in Congress with that I know from the labor movement sent me a text and she said, Hey, you should start a dance caucus. And I was, I said, Oh, I'm just thinking about that. Mm. He said, and she worked for an organization called paid, um, paid leave us. And she said, we tried to do it for about four years bicameral bipartisan, but the Republicans always bailed out. Like they always, they would say, yeah, they're interested. And then they wouldn't do it. And I said, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to do it with just Democrats only. So we started the Dad's Caucus with Democrats only to build momentum to get, you know, to start the conversation. One, Dad should be doing more at home. Two, we should also be doing more um, here in Congress to fight for paid family leave, to fight for child tax credit, for affordable child care. And um, we started off with six members. We're up to 31, 32 members. And what I tell people is- Are um, they all Democrats or have you gotten Republicans? No, they're all Democrats, and I. It was a very conscious decision because if I'm waiting for Republicans, then we're we're preventing any momentum from building, right? right? Mm -hmm. And um, and I also recognize Democrats and Republicans when it comes to the have different views of the role of government in people's lives, especially when it comes to kids and families. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I sit on the House Ways and Means Committee, or I was, I was right now. I'm on a on a leave. Um, they always talk about family values, but I always said that they never support policies that value families. And, you know, you know, and it was just kind of like, why is that? So I, I didn't want to be, I didn't want to slow down mm -hmm. and build on the momentum and moment, like moments come and go. Right. But how do you create momentum and movement and a movement is very difficult. So my goal was to, um, get moving and we, we've done a lot. Um, we pushed for, we've, We've had roundtables, the state on the state of 
paid family leave in the in the United States with all these different groups. We had a roundtable with um, Doug Emoff, the second gentleman. Um, we're we're raising these issues, and people are coming to us to talk about the role of fathers in in caregiving, the role of fathers in leave, um, the how it impacts um, you know uh, uh, a spouse when it comes to postpartum issues, or how the fathers have mm-hmm. postpartum. Issues. So it it's really is kind of elevating the issue, and it's just and it's also fun because I get to combine, like of course my love for my son, I love hanging out with him, and and my and my work, um, which is uh, being a member of Congress. But it it's been a a very positive thing. Um, but eventually we're gonna reach out to the Republicans. We 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 send them invites. Hey, join the Dad's Caucus, join the Dad's Caucus, and um, you're like, uh, hey, I'm not diapering no babies. <laughs> that's my wife's yeah, they, job. Uh, you know, some people say that's the reason. Um, yeah, I but bet I, it is. You know, but there's some Democrats that haven't joined because they're like, that's true. I know a few of those. They're, they're like, uh, I don't know if I want that scrutiny. Yeah. I don't know if I want that scrutiny. We have a few minutes left. I got to ask you about what's going on in the House. Sometimes I feel like saying that the Republican House is broken, but it actually feels dead. Like what they did yesterday with Adam Schiff. What is happening here? Like they won by a slim majority and the way they've used that power is to have these bullshit weaponization hearings, investigating Hunter Biden, uh, Lauren Boebert's impeachment articles against Joe Biden, and and now censuring Adam Schiff when someone like George Santos is walking around not having been censured. Explain that for me, will you? Well, the House is... um like speakers are elected right and the hard right of the republican party and even the even the quote-unquote moderate part um got concessions from mccarthy and everything he's been doing is trying to stay in in power that means doing this debt ceiling fight which um which was uh, you know he tried to claim it as big victory but even his own members saw it as a big defeat um, he and then um, also just pushing a lot of the conspiracy ideas that were around and making and rebranding them in order to be more palatable for the American public. Right? So the weaponization of literally is the deep state. That's what it is. And and it was what was it? It used to be for the QAnon folks a deep state cabal that like had the pedophile that were made up of pedophiles and a bunch of other craziness yeah, making right? pizzas so, in the basement in dc <laughs> so and so drinking babies are, blood so so they're trapped by the the conspiracy wing mm-hmm. of the republican party and 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 part of that conspiracy is that um, donald trump is innocent he won the 2020 election it was, um and that this it, the democrats unjustly went after trump because of, there was no evidence, but everything you look at, it was the evidence was there. It was it was real, mm-hmm. and they and 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 Adam Schiff is the face of it. So when they the censure was just a a, a mockery, you know. When when um, Democrats we censure Andy Big is because he actually was creating a, uh, a dangerous situation for some members, threatening implying violence. Right. Um, when other people have been censured, it was for serious things. That's why when a censure only matters when people feel that it was just, mm-hmm. right? Not just one party, but both right. parties. It should be bipartisan. Yeah. And if no, if people on one side thinks it's unjust because you didn't present evidence, you didn't make a case, you're just basing it off of what Donald Trump says. Mm-hmm. Then, um, then it actually backfires. I think, especially when it comes to, um, you know, the the voters in California. Um, Adam Schiff was already a popular guy. He was the face of uh, of the impeachment and the face of investigation, and that's why they chose him. Right? They didn't choose choose anybody else who talked uh, who voted for impeachment. They chose Adam Schiff because he was the face of it. And I suspect that him. Running for Senate and being a leading candidate has something to do with it as well. Yeah, you know? yeah, I I think so. Um, yesterday, first, I think he uh, 
it, this just helps him. Like, I'll be honest, right. like the three candidates, Katie Porter, Barbara Lee, and Adam Schiff are all well-liked with the, mm-hmm. within the party. Well-liked. So um, that's why I think they're so bunched up in the polls. Um, and uh, they're, um, this just gives elevates his, his stature. Yeah, and it also elevates the Democratic House as well, and I think bodes well for 24. I think voters yes. uh, are going to look and say, hey, we gave you the House, and look, look what you, you've done nothing except this grievance nonsense and, and, and <laughs> it was, fealty yeah. to Trump. Yeah, no, yesterday was a, a pretty sad day. Eric Schwalwell was sitting there calling a, calling a Kevin McCarthy uh, weak and pathetic, like mm-hmm. not standing. A, like it was a terrible day because it just did show the weakness of the, uh, of the majority. Right. Right. Well, it's interesting it, you it, say it, sad and pathetic because after Trump was indicted, there were people saying, oh, this is a sad day. And yeah. I, I felt like, no, it wasn't a sad day. This is a great day because justice has been served. But you're right. Yesterday was actually the sad day because one of the chambers of our Congress was co-opted by lunacy. Because they, they didn't go to an ethics investigation. They didn't. So now it goes to the ethics committee, which is bipartisan, 50% mm-hmm. Dems, 50% Republicans, which it should be. And there's been cases where they they have ruled against what both sides, right? A Democrat or a Republican, when they violated our rules, mm-hmm. and and it's been bipartisan. That's the way it should be. This one went out of order, and so sent it to the Ethics Committee. They they just took it up and voted for censure right off the bat. Now it goes to the Ethics Committee. So it was, um, yeah, no. Last yesterday was a pretty crazy day. I would say this has been. It's been calm. I tell people this has not has been as crazy as all the years Donald Trump was in office, you know, the insurrection, mm-hmm. pandemic, all that was like, it's been wild to be a member of Congress during this time. This time has been crazy because stuff is happening that just doesn't happen, which is a function of the House. Nobody's like making the Republicans be dysfunctional. They're right. dysfunctional because... They can't get their act together, you know, when it comes to the debt ceiling, when it comes to can't pass a rule, right? right? That's a procedural vote. That's right. like, that is sad. Um, first time in 20 something year. Uh, so, and then that vote, which was, was, was a farce. That's the sad part. Like some of the stuff I've, I'm seeing now, I've never seen. It's just like, yeah. and I'm, and you probably like you, you're a, a student of politics and government. This is a bizarre time to be in. Bizarre pathetic and strange at all at the same same time well, it's a, it's not politics it's a, uh, one side is a cult uh, i know you got it wrong but i got one last quick question do you think we're in an inflection point with trump you start to see some of his staunchest allies bailing running for the hills running against him is this the point we have been waiting for uh i don't think so um first the american public um you know, that we love celebrities. And Donald Trump, before he got elected, was a celebrity. Have you ever, like, think about it. They're almost, it's hard to, regular political critiques don't impact them. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of respects, Donald Trump, though he's a politician, he's still a, a celebrity in a lot of people's minds. They feel like they know him from his Apprentice days. I watched The Apprentice. I'm not ashamed to yeah. admit it. It was a fun show, and I thought he was a fun character. And yeah. But I never thought that this lunatic would ever become president. That's the difference. You know, I I have a set of ideals and requirements for people who I want in the Oval Office. And and hosting a reality show is not one of them. Yeah. And so one of the things, uh, no, exactly. But here's the thing. Um, In today's politics, whatever side you're on, like all the people that are Trump supporters or want to be Trump supporters, some of them just need a little information, a little, some facts that back up their worldview that he was treated unjustly mm-hmm. to justify why they're going to support him again. And even with a lot of the stuff coming out regarding um, the different investigations, they're facts that don't lead to a conclusion that of innocence for Trump, but they're facts that can help justify why the people believe that he is innocent and they should support him. So um, that's what all this is about. You know, the 
the Durham report, bringing him up, even though he was he was just destroyed on on judiciary committee. But um, it's it's enough nuggets that people will hold on to that mm-hmm. um, to support him. So I don't think he's done. Um, I think and Republicans, when when whoever their nominee is, they fall in line. They just fall in line. Right. Democrats will, you know, uh, you know, you gotta love Democrats because we um we'll we'll beat you up until you until you win, and then after you win, you will still beat you up a little bit more. Um, but yeah, Republicans fall in line. So I think that that's what you're gonna see is if, as long as he looks like he and it's winner take all. They win all. He barely wins by. He has more votes than anybody else in a particular state, which he will. He will, he will win all their delegates. So he's going to rack up all the the delegate win. Unless something happens between now and the and the primaries, he's 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 going to be the nominee of the Republican Party. Yeah. Well, I always like to say his base doesn't care whether he's in the Oval Office or the square cell. So yeah. and that's just crazy. Congressman, you've been amazing. I hope you'll come back. This has been uh, really enlightening. And uh, thanks for your time. And thank you, congratulations Andy. on that dad's caucus. That's really admirable and inspirational. Oh, thank you so much. Appreciate it. All righty. Take care. Bye. That's episode 87. If you like what you've been hearing, and even if you don't, let us know. We appreciate the feedback. You can leave us a message at 845-307-7446. Email us at backroomandy at gmail.com or tweet to me at Andy Ostroyd. And when you listen, please take a quick moment to rate and review. It's very helpful. And if you do like the podcast, please follow or subscribe and you'll be notified every time we post a new episode. I want to thank my co-producer, engineer, and editor, Maddie Rosenberg, associate producer, Jenna Mood, Cricket Langell for our artwork, Andy Hollander for our kick-ass music, Patricia Wind and the Epicurean for the Backroom Studio, and a big thank you again to our guest, Congressman Jimmy Gomez. So keep your eyes on Washington, Hollywood, and your own backyards, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.